and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, July 9th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hello, everybody. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Later in this episode, we'll have our Bill of the Month interview. This month, it's with my KHN colleague, Sarah Varney. She's got the story of yet another patient with possible COVID-19 who was directed to an emergency room because that was the only place that had tests at the time and ended up getting not the test, but a big bill from the emergency room instead. But first, the news. Let's start this week with non-COVID news. First up, the Supreme Court, which yesterday ruled that employers with a religious or moral objection to birth control don't have to offer it as a part of their health insurance, even though it's otherwise required under the Affordable Care Act. And by the way, in case you missed it, we did a quickie special on the court's abortion decision last week. It's in your podcast feed right before this episode. So unlike last week's decision, which struck down a Louisiana law, this decision went the Trump administration's way. We have no idea how many employees or dependents might lose birth control coverage over this. And the case is going back to the lower court, so it still could be struck down. But how big a deal is it that we're not just talking about religious nonprofits like hospitals or universities anymore, but any employer who has a moral objection to birth control, that in theory could really expand the universe of who might be able to and who might want to just stop offering birth control coverage, right? Yes, it could. Um, Now, the moral exemptions don't apply to publicly traded companies or to government entities, but they do apply to, you know, other types of employers. And the Trump administration did put out an estimate, although we don't know how accurate that would be, of course, that about 130,000 women would be impacted by this rule. I should mention too, there are there are still other loopholes that insurers use regarding birth control. Um, they have to cover a type of birth control, but they won't necessarily cover the specific one that you're on. So let's say you're on a brand name birth control, then you might still have a copay now. Let's say that they cover one hormonal IUD, but not the other. So the number of women that are impacted, not just by this rule, but already you know don't have as much access as advocates of more access to birth control would like to see. I think you have to cover one of each FDA-approved method, right? Isn't that the right? Isn't that exactly how it the method. So it might not right. be a, the specific brand that you're on. So not every generic. pill, but a pill and an and IUD and yeah. Exactly. So reproductive rights would like to see, you know, that <laughs> changed as well. So adding this, you know, moves it even further backwards. And and this, you know, has been been painted as sort of, you know, the, the, the continued sort of chipping away at birth control by the Trump administration. You know, they what they argued in this case is that women who stop getting birth control from their employers can go to public clinics. Um, but they at the same time, this administration's been cutting back. They're, they've defunded Planned Parenthood. They're they're cutting back on you know on funding for for other programs um, that provide birth control. I mean, you 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 actually you get if you look at it sort of broadly, you get the idea that perhaps this administration doesn't believe that birth control is something that women should have easy access to, right? Um, I think that's you know definitely been clear by their broader health agenda that you know they have taken multiple steps to try to scale back women's access to birth control. Obviously, reproductive rights groups 
have been strongly opposed to this. I do think, you know, you mentioned that this is going back to a lower court, so we haven't necessarily seen the end of it. We saw yesterday from Democratic lawmakers, you know, we're going to propose bills trying to reverse this. So I do think that depending on what happens in November, which, you know, who knows, um, obviously, but um, this could be something that if you do see an administration change or the Senate change parties and the Democrats keep the House, you could see, you know, this being approached by lawmakers and trying to change this rule in the future. Obviously, you know, abortion's been irritant is too mild a word, you know, uh, something that has been a major factor in American politics since 19, since the early 70s in Roe. Contraception wasn't such a political football, and it wasn't even in the courts as much for a number of years in there. And what happened is when the Obama administration used this um, provision within Obamacare, the preventive care benefits, to create this mandate for covering contraception, it began what's you know, seven or eight years now of fighting about who has to fulfill that mandate and who can become exempt on moral and religious grounds. And there have been a number of court cases in the Supreme Court and the lower courts. So it's become a parallel track of fighting about reproductive health, not as intense um, as abortion. No one is saying contraception should be outlawed. I mean, that's not a mainstream position. It's more a matter of who has to provide it. And some of the groups that oppose contraception don't even oppose all forms of contraception. Some do and some don't. So, I, But I think that since it's now in the bloodstream as a political issue, I don't, this isn't the end of it. The, you know, This ruling was 7-2, which I think is worth noting. It wasn't a 5-4. Because the Obamacare statute does say there can be religious exemptions. So that was that's oversimplifying the legal arguments. But basically, there is language in the law that said, yes, there can be exemptions. The court said this falls into that exemption. But I don't think this is by any means the end of it. And it's going to go on for years. Actually, what the reason and there's been a lot there was a lot of chatter uh, on Twitter and elsewhere yesterday about, you know, how did why did Kagan and Breyer, who made up the seven, it was the five conservatives, plus Kagan and Breyer, why did they go along with this? And the end answer is because of what Joanne was saying is actually what was in the statute was that the discretion was left to the Department of Health and Human Services in general and to HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, which handles contraception in particular, and that, that HRSA had the discretion to do this. However, if you read the concurrence by Kagan that was signed onto by Breyer, what she said is that even though they had the discretion to do this, the states also challenged the regulations being arbitrary and capricious, uh, which she thought it was. But the court never got to that because it struck it down earlier. So now it goes back to the court and they're going to actually, they can litigate whether or not this was arbitrary and capricious. And according to the four liberals, you know, it, it would be struck down on that. But one, one could see that you could go down, the, the appeals court might find it arbitrary and capricious, strike it down again, and then it would come back to the Supreme Court. And then the five conservatives, if they're all still there, would, would uphold it again. So it's true. It's not over, but uh, we sh for the moment, we shall move on. Um, and so since we're on the subject of the Supreme Court and the Affordable Care Act, it feels like eons ago, but it was really only two weeks since the Trump administration filed its brief with the Supreme Court in that case out of Texas, challenging the constitutionality of the entire law. To no one's surprise, even in the midst of a pandemic, the administration says the entire law should be tossed out. Meanwhile, last week, to capitalize on the publicity about the administration's call to eliminate the health law, the Democratic-led House passed a bill that would build on it at least a little bit. Um, Mel, what was in that House messaging bill? First and foremost, you know, big picture was what wasn't in it, which is any sort of public option, um, massive expansion of health insurance. These were 
a lot of the ideas that Democrats have been talking about, at least in the last two years when they've been in control of the House, but also before about trying to increase the size and availability of tax credits, you know, limiting what anyone pays for health insurance to 8.5% of their annual income. It provides some incentives and some disincentives for states to expand Medicaid. So, you know, allowing states who have not expanded Medicaid to enjoy that same federal match rate that the states that did expand early on in 2014 had if they expand now and, you know, tries to incentivize them even more by saying your administrative match might get a little bit hit if you don't expand Medicaid, which I think was interesting. It also, you know, included the provisions from the House Democrats drug pricing bill from a few months ago. That was such big news then and has sort of, you know, we've all forgotten about a little bit. It was December. It was it was in the pre-time. It was December, ages ago, in the before. It includes the provisions there to sort of pay for all of this to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Um, those are sort of like the big picture, big provisions of what was in this, you know, pretty large bill that, you know, passed pretty much on party line. Um, you had a couple, couple of crossovers, but not too much here. But like you said, this was really a messaging bill and a way for Democrats to say, in the midst of a pandemic, when the Trump administration is asking the Supreme Court to overturn Obamacare, which has been a lifeline for you know, thousands of people who have lost their jobs in this pandemic, we are going to try to, you know, build on this law, build on, you know, this federal support that you get to buy your health insurance, messaging ahead of, you know, the November election where everyone in the Democratic Party, even before the pandemic, was really trying to focus on health care and health insurance coverage. So we're still assuming, although we don't have a date yet, that the Supreme Court will probably hear the ACA case before the November election, but almost certainly won't decide it by then. Um, so where do we stand with the health law, including this latest birth control ruling, as a political issue in the coming presidential and congressional campaigns? You know, in the in the before times, this would probably have been one of the top issues. Now I wonder if the pandemic is going to swamp it or whether it will become sort of part of the pandemic rhetoric. I think it'll become part of the pandemic rhetoric, but it's not the salient issue. It's still a salient issue, but it probably would have been the dominant. I mean, you know, every time we talked over the last year, we'd say, is healthcare going to be the top issue, the top domestic issue in the election? And somebody would always say yes. And I would always say, you never know what's going to happen. Although pandemic was not on my list of likely scenarios. But yes, you know, we always said that Things change fast. So did healthcare go away as a concern? No, it's a pocketbook issue, even more intensely for the tens of millions of people who've lost their jobs or have had a family member lose a job. I mean, it's, and the fact that the national crisis we're dealing with is in fact this horrendous healthcare crisis. Yes, different aspects of healthcare is going to be a dominant issue. In many ways, this is going to be a referendum on how Trump has handled the pandemic. So unless something even worse happens, but don't get me started. um, We haven't seen the murder hornets yet. Right. Things change. I mean, the election is still several months away. I mean, what the Democrats just did in the House was, you know, for them, it was pretty easy. It wasn't anything that they know the Senate's not going to take it up. There was nothing in it that people don't agree with making health care more, you know, making it easier for people to buy health insurance. It, it was sort of the, the common denominator of the Democratic positions without getting into anything that was hard for somebody from a more conservative district to vote for. And also, because it is so modest, in some ways, it's easier for them to beat up on the Republicans. They wouldn't even vote for this. You know, I mean, it, it sets things up. It's hard. It's harder for the Republicans to fight back on a more modest bill. I mean, they will, but because they, you know, but... 
Although it was also, I mean, to protect the moderates, right? Yes. I mean, it was so that they, the, the moderates who would, they will need to keep the House didn't really want to be voting for a public option. Right. I mean, the House um, is not in danger for the Democrats. So why create danger is uh, what was going on there. I mean, I thought sort of from a more technical point of view, I thought that 8.5% eight as, as opposed to a percentage of poverty level was an interesting way to define affordability or define who gets subsidies because it takes into account regional variations, right? I mean, there's some places in the country where 400% of poverty buys you an awful lot. And there are other parts of the country where 400% of poverty, you're not living an extravagant, wealthy lifestyle, you know, because there's so much difference in cost of living. There's so much difference in the cost of health care. There's so much difference in the cost of insurance. So this is sort of making it a percentage seem to be, and I haven't delved deep into every think tank brief that's been written about this in the last week. But it, it seemed like an interesting way of addressing some equity issues. But yeah, we'll be hearing about health care. Remember, we haven't heard that much from Biden yet. There's still some bridge building and hand outreaching going on among the different wings of the Democratic Party. They're clearly coming together, but we haven't heard a lot of specifics about you know how Biden is going to move. And I don't think we know where the country is. I mean, this is this pandemic and the loss of health insurance is going to change public attitudes. We just don't know how far and how fast. All right. Well, that that's a wonderful segue uh, into my I next I always topic, do that for you, is, Julie. I know. Thank you. So also in the would have been big news, but for the pandemic category, Oklahoma voters last week uh, approved a referendum to make it, I believe, the 37th state to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Unlike some of the other red states where voters have done what elected officials have declined to do, the vote in Oklahoma was very close. Still, it is now the fifth state to vote to expand. And Missouri has a similar question on its ballot for August. Um, Do we think the pandemic might make this more attractive to voters in these really red states? It hasn't failed in any state where it's been on the ballot long before the pandemic. I mean, Maine's a moderate state. It passed there. And then it passed in very conservative states. It passed in, what was it, Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho. There's no state that has gone on the ballot where even conservative states, very conservative, what's more conservative than Utah and Idaho? Voters have supported this. And Oklahoma was tighter, but they supported it in Oklahoma too. So it's now it's up to the governor. He's fighting it. I mean, how hard, how, how what can he drag out? He's trying to get a block grant. It's not happening. It's not supposed to happen, I believe, for a year. One of the other Women may remember whether it's a year from now. So there's going to be lots of fighting. There's always fighting. I mean, Medicaid, it can't, you can't do anything Medicaid without fighting. Yes. So it's, it'll it's be a year or so of fighting, and we'll see. That was my second question. Is Oklahoma going to be like some of these other red states where the voters approved the expansion, but the governors and or the legislatures refused or delayed or somehow, you know, figured out how they could try to hold it up in Maine? Remember, it was literally held up until the governor was voted out of office. They did not, even though the voters had voted for what, like a year and a half earlier. And the legislature was supportive. But in fairness, I mean, Oklahoma's going to have to come up with some money for this. I mean, I know, I guess in the in the in the ACA messaging bill, they wouldn't have to come up with the money for it. But under the current law, they do. Yeah, exactly. And they have to pay for 10% of the expansion, but even 10% of billions of dollars can be a good chunk of money. And during a pandemic in which states are taking in less revenue, um, how to pay for these services becomes more challenging. We know that a lot of states are actually looking at cuts to Medicaid in the months ahead, and that's why there's a big push by Democrats in the House to really make sure that the next coronavirus stimulus package um, expected either at the end of this month or early August would have specific federal relief going to states so that they can pay for some of these programs. 
So now Kimberly has given me the segue, which is let's talk about COVID. Since we last talked, has gotten worse rather than better here, at least in the U.S., with giant spikes in states including Arizona, Florida, Texas, and California. And so 30 the others. Issue of the week, yeah, and 30 others. But those are the big ones. The, the issue of the week is clearly schools and how to open them safely. Apparently, the Trump administration thinks the CDC's guidelines are too cumbersome and is ordering a new set. Uh, they will be clarifying as the vice president said on Wednesday. Some colleges, notably Harvard, are planning to go online only, and others are hoping to have a hybrid model with some in-person classes and some online. Sports may or may not happen. Uh, The Ivy League called off all of its sports uh, for the fall uh, this week. We've had months to try to figure this out. We were talking about how to reopen schools back in March. Did all of that time get completely wasted? It kind of feels like it in a way. Like it sort of feels like we're so, like students are supposed to go back to school in the next four to six weeks. And it feels like, okay, now we're going to figure out how to do this. Not everyone, but it really kind of feels like that we've been like, okay, now we're at a month from now. How do we get kids back to school? And weirdly, I sort of think that the how has turned into like whether kids should go back to school. And, you know, the vice president was asked this yesterday during the task force briefing. It's like, okay, you've made the point for children to go back to school. Yes, it's good. But like, how do you do that? And even the guidance that President Trump has now said is overbearing doesn't get into it gets into like a little bit of like, you know, what exactly to do. But it doesn't really say like, how do you social distance? How do you say no cafeterias, no playgrounds? Like, how do you actually do that? Which is guidance that, you know, teachers unions and parents groups are saying, like, please give us like, tell us how you're going to make these adaptations. And I think everyone's just really like, how, how, how do we go about doing this? You know, schools are not made to have six feet apart from children and in the classroom in the hallways and the buses, like there's no playbook for this. We needed a playbook. And it feels like the past, you know, four months, no one has developed that playbook. It's like trying to encase little children in plexiglass cubes. I mean, I think that if, if public health had a bumper sticker, it would sort of be open schools, not bars. There is a lot of desire to figure out how to get kids in school at least part of the time. It's not good for kids to be home. It's not good for their education. It's not good for their social and emotional development. It's not good for their parents who need to work or, frankly, even for their parents who who aren't working outside the home. The American Academy of Pediatrics wants kids back in school. But, you know, as Mel just said, it's easy to say, how do you do? I think you will see some schools opening and they may be opening and closing and there may be, you know, a lot of fits and starts. I think there is a lot of desire to get children in school in some capacity, but it's not going to be bump free. I was just going to say, we saw those sad pictures from France where when the kids went back to school, you saw them on the playground and they'd drawn little circles, little six feet circles, and the kids have to play within their little circles so they can social distance. The children are Um, also amazingly adaptable. And, you know, a three-year-old isn't going to understand six feet, but, you know, you can create games for, you know, eight-year-olds involving six feet. And I think kids are going to want, you know, an awful lot of kids are going to want to be back with their friends. And as much as they may complain about school, I think a lot of kids want to be back in school and college is a separate mess which we're not talking about as much but there's that's also the only thing that's worse than for kids than going to school is not going to school as it turns out or going to school at your computer and i do think that this hybrid model of you know going in a couple days a week and sort of you know giving kids a couple of days a week it's something that a lot of districts new york city the largest district in the country announced yesterday this is what they're doing again like 
it it does seem like are you gonna you know live stream your lessons and everyone will do like how exactly it's gonna work but it does seem sort of like an interesting approach and maybe the best approach for you know if you're trying to have fewer people in place then at least kids get something it also seems kind of very difficult for parents i am obviously not one but i would imagine that that would be very difficult for parents trying to match their work schedules to their student school schedule but it, it does seem sort of like an interesting approach that a lot of districts have been talking about well it seems the biggest uh, problem with opening schools and opening everything else is still testing even where there are sufficient tests the time to get results seems to be anywhere from from 5 to 10 to 21 days. That won't work for contact tracing unless everyone who gets a test self-quarantines, which I'm pretty sure they are not. Uh, and in some of the hardest hit states right now, like Texas and Florida and Arizona, you can have to wait hours and hours and hours in the heat just to get a test if you can, and then wait days and days and days to get a result. So how are we still here with testing in July? And what happened to all those rapid tests we were promised back in March and April? Kimberly, you're nodding. <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, there are so many people lining up for testing and so many people who are infected that, um, you know, you just have a backlog of people getting tested. It takes a while to get the results back. Labs are overwhelmed. Um, so it's taking them a while to test those. We know that a lot of the tests aren't coming in accurately. Um, and if you're waiting more than two weeks for a test result, then you might as well have quarantined for those two weeks because that's, you know, about the amount of time that it takes to um, you know, find out how you're doing. I don't know yet whether we'll see more funding for testing in the next coronavirus stimulus. America's health insurance plans, which represents the health insurance lobby, estimates that it, in order to get people back to work and tested on a regular basis, it would cost about $25 billion. And um, so having that price tag attached is not a price they want to pick up. It's not one that employers want to pick up either. And so the question becomes, you know, not just about ramping up the amount of tests you have, but once you have them, who pays to, for it all to happen, for, you know, the results to come in, for the testing and all those different things. So um, it's, it's not where it needs to be in order to get things back to normal. So, so to circle back just to the schools thing for a second, I mean, I think the idea of school, of opening the schools was that if you had, you know, uh, consistent testing and you could quickly, you know, isolate uh, and contact trace the positives, you could maybe keep, you know, you could let kids go to school um, and keep the virus basically at bay. But if you can't test, how can you, you know, allow kids to just sort of be potentially spreading the virus amongst themselves and amongst their families and amongst teachers and other adult staff at the schools? As, as Joanne mentioned, you know, we haven't really gotten as much into conversations about colleges and universities. Um, but I did a story a couple months ago talking to some university presidents about how do you do testing when you have students from all over the country and a lot of places going to your campus coming on. And it was really interesting because smaller colleges and universities were able to sort of, you know, say, okay, we're going to have fewer students on campus than normal and we're going to test them all regularly and we're going to partner with this private lab and invest in this and test all of these people. But then at larger colleges and universities, even those with like medical centers where you would think, you know, they'd be able to have like you know, maybe a lab there or testing capacity, they were saying like, we just can't physically do that. Like there's no way of doing it. So, you know, I do think that also the idea of testing young children regularly is sort of a thought that, you know, hasn't crossed people's mind as much, you know, subjecting these are, you know, not comfortable tests. So the idea that you're going to like regularly test seven-year-olds frequently for the coronavirus so they can go to school um, is a little bit questionable, I guess. But I mean, it would be really helpful and probably, you know, ease parents' state of mind if, 
we could do that. However, that just doesn't seem to be on the public conversation. Yeah, what we need and we don't have. I mean, they're in development, but they don't exist. um, They're not available and they're not proven to work yet. You know, we need sort of the kind of instant tests like a pregnancy test. You know, you need what we need is something you can do at home and do in your mouth and get a result in two minutes. And parents could do that for their kids and or schools could do it, whatever, however you decide. But it doesn't exist. Once that exists, and once it, I mean, it exists in a prototype, but it's not available. And that's really what we need. Right. I mean, we all and need yeah, to be able to have easier. a cheap test that we can do three days a week before we come into contact with other people. And, you know, whether we go to work one day a week and we test that one day or, you know, what, however it works out, but we don't have it. So the tool that would make this possible doesn't exist. And given all the other stuff that's gone on, I'm not a biochemist or molecular or whatever. It seems like someone could have invented one of these. I mean, it's such a clear need and such a huge market. You can get your entire genome by spitting in a tube. You should be able to figure out whether you have coronavirus by spitting in a tube. And kids will love spitting in tubes. That'll work in kindergarten. I do think that like one challenge with that is definitely going to be if you think back to all of the concerns with like whether or not the antibody tests work, like even when those are available, like do they have to work? The concerns around do they work is going to be so big because there have been all of these problems over the last few months that people might not trust it as much as well. Yes, that's the big issue with the FDA, you know, letting a thousand flowers bloom and letting all of these tests on the market, some of which didn't work. Which Some of them were weeds. Yeah. Speaking of things that we have previously talked about, um, the Trump administration has apparently decided that one way to fix things is to leave the World Health Organization. The formal notification was filed on Tuesday. Uh, is this really going to happen? Um, Obviously, it takes a year to get out of the WHO. So if Trump is no longer president next year, it could be reversed. But if it did happen, what impact would it have not just on the coronavirus, but on world health in general? A ton. The World Health Organization, um, you know, oversees major vaccination campaigns all over the world and places in the world where, you know, you don't have clean water, where malaria is still a big killer. Um, and the U.S. contributes a huge amount of funding to the World Health Organization. So if we do end up pulling out, um, then, you know, that would ca- that would have ripple effects to um, other parts of health care. Biden has said that if he's president, he would um, stop that from happening. And, you know, as you mentioned, it would take about a year for it to go on anyway and we don't know who's going to be president next year and we don't know if president trump would change his mind if he were reelected. so the threat of what could be lost is is high in in, in this kind of scenario and there, there are some republicans in congress who don't agree with this i mean lamar alexander being one of them although he won't be there next year he's retiring but he's spoken out quite strongly and the congress has to go along with this um and as of now it doesn't Right now, all the things that Trump is doing to trash the WHO, I mean, there, and there are legitimate questions. Lots of th- everybody made mistakes. There's nobody involved with this pandemic who has not made mistakes. So it's legitimate to look at those mistakes and it's legitimate to look at what needs to be done better. But it's interesting because U.S. cooperation is still going on. U.S. scientists, U.S. public health officials, I think Azar himself uh, was at, recently at a, a WHO, uh, it was by Zoom, it was a virtual. I think Brad Girard was at one. Tony Fauci's been uh, doing, I mean, has talked about he's continuing to do collaboration. So right now the scientific and public health collaboration is continuing despite this layer of political brouhaha writ large. The CDC has people stationed at the WHO. So, I don't think I mean, as many they... as in past years, though. 
but I may. But there are but there are CDC officials in Geneva, which is where it's based. I mean, the CDC is really much more of an international organization or a global health organization than many Americans realize. Much of that has been in partnership with the with the WHO, and I think the the two crowning achievements have been the eradication of smallpox and the um, vast improvement in fighting diseases that kill young children in poor countries, mostly through vaccination and clean water. And as Joanne said, you know, Congress does have to go along with this, Um, something that you might see come up in the next couple of months as Congress goes through the appropriations process is whether or not Congress is appropriating money to pay the outstanding dues to the World Health Organization. And does this become one of the many items in the appropriations process that Trump could threaten a veto over. I think we'll, we'll, hold, we'll talk about the appropriations process next week. Um, so that is the news for this week. Now it is time for my interview with Sarah Varney about the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Sarah Varney, who wrote the current bill of the month. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks, Julie. So this month's bill is for the third month in a row about someone seeking care for possible COVID-19. Tell us who she is and why she ended up in the emergency room. So her name is Carmen Quintero. She's 35 years old. She lives in Corona, California if you can believe that, with the coronavirus. Um, It's east of Los Angeles, and she works at a distribution warehouse that sends out N95 masks. So definitely an essential worker. An essential worker. She's worked this entire time. She lives at home with her girlfriend, with her girlfriend's children, with her girlfriend's parents, who are both over 65, and an 84-year-old grandmother. So crowded house, obviously coming home every day and very concerned about infecting anybody else. So on March 23rd, she went to work. She had a a terrible cough, a severe cough, and her supervisor and HR person sent her home and said, you can't come back to work until you have a test that says you don't have COVID-19. So she dutifully went home. She called her general practitioner, and uh, this person said, it sounds like you have the COVID-19 symptoms. I need you to go immediately to the closest emergency room and get a test. So she followed her doctor's orders. She lives around the corner from Corona Regional Medical Center, and she walked over there. She went into the ER. They did an x-ray of her chest. They did a breathing test and breathing treatment. And then after that, the medical staff said to her, we don't actually have any coronavirus tests. We are going to, however, give you a prescription for an inhaler. And here's a list of where you should go to go see the Riverside County Public Health Department to get a test. So the Odyssey continues. She drove over to one of these addresses. There was a public health worker standing outside with a piece of paper. They handed her the piece of paper that had a 1-800 number on it for her to call to schedule a test. She goes home. She calls the 1-800 number. They say, the earliest we can get you an appointment for a test is April 7th. So that was more than two weeks later. So at that point, she's stuck. She's at home. She's got these elderly people who are vulnerable to catching COVID-19. And then she has to stay home. She has three sick days from her company. She's already used two, so she is going to use one of those. And then she has to take vacation days for the rest of her time when she's quarantining herself at home. And then the bill arrives. 
And she ends up with a $1,840 bill for the services that were given to her in the emergency room, which she never asked for and uh, never got the test. Now, this was back in March, but it was after Congress passed the law stipulating that COVID testing and related care should be at no cost to the patients. So why did she get a bill? Yeah, good question. So if this is not in violation of the words of the law, it's certainly in violation of the spirit of the law, right? So here's a person who did exactly what you and I would do, what any reasonable person would do. They followed their doctor's orders. They went to the ER. Uh, the problem, however, is that they didn't have the test there. So there's nothing in her chart that says she had coronavirus or she was suspected of having the symptoms of coronavirus. So she really doesn't have any follow-up. She called her insurance company, Anthem Blue Cross. She called the hospital. She talked to her employer. Basically, no one would help her. And she has this type of insurance, which I know you're familiar with and you talk a lot about on your podcast. Her deductible is $3,500. So essentially what they told her was, you're out of luck. You didn't meet your deductible. So you're now on the hook for this. So she uh, kept getting repeated bills from the hospital. And they basically said, we're going to send you to collections unless you start making some payments on this. So now she's paying $100 a month towards that bill. And still arguing about whether or not this bill should have been sent in the first place, right? That's exactly right. As you know, with the bill of the month, we reporters, we make calls on behalf of these of these folks to the insurers, to uh, the hospital, in some cases to the employers to try and figure out is there anything that should be done here. But clearly, you know, we're getting many submissions of people, as you know, from around the country who are saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be getting billed for anything related to COVID testing. But yet, as you also know, the moment you step into an ER, they are going to do all sorts of things to you, even if it's just take your name down and you're going to walk out of there with a bill for a lot of money. You point out in the story that there are a lot of loopholes to the quote unquote COVID care will be at no out of pocket cost to the consumer. She apparently fell into one of them. What are some of those loopholes? So this law is supposed to help people who go in for COVID testing. The point here, however, is that she went to the hospital. They didn't have the test, but they delivered care anyway. So it's a loophole in the law, but it's also just a loophole in the way the medical system works. I mean, had she walked in there and the ER said, we don't have the coronavirus test here. You need to go someplace else. Otherwise, you're going to get a bill. And they had just been up front with her. That would have been one way to deal with it. The other would be to have widespread testing where she went directly to the public health department and then they dealt with her. But in Unfortunately, her GP told her to go to the ER. So in some ways, she's in this catch-22 that so many other people are in. But also, if you work for a company that has self-insurance, that they insure themselves, they are actually um, not beholden to a slew of state laws that are kind of an added buffer to this COVID testing question. And and what about, you know, what what should people do? I mean, one of the issues here that, that you got into a little bit is that if regardless of whether you can get a test, if you think you have COVID, you really need to isolate. Um, but, you know, if you're living in a house with a bunch of people, including people who are at high risk for getting a serious illness, you know, what can you do? So when Carmen got sick, this was March 23rd, there were very few places in the country that were offering, very few cities or counties that were really offering people a place to go and isolate. I mean, there was a lot of discussion at the time about what do we do with people who are homeless, who don't have a place to go and isolate. And so you saw some cities mobilizing around that population pretty quickly. In New York City at the time, they did actually have a hotel program because, of course, they were hit really early. So they started to get one of these programs up and running. King County, uh, Seattle uh, area, they were getting a program up and running. But in Riverside County, where Carmen lives, there wasn't anything at that point. 
pretty quickly after that, many cities and counties started using these programs that were targeted for people who were homeless to also then try and house somebody who needed to isolate for other reasons. So for instance, now in Riverside County and Los Angeles and many other places, if you have COVID symptoms and you need to isolate, you should ask that directly. If you're not getting any information from your private doctor or from the hospital, you should call the public health department and say, hey, look, I need this. And in some cases, they can put you in a hotel. In other cases, they have other types of congregate housing that they can put you in. I think some places have RVs. That That's they exactly can, right. Like lend to you. Yeah, Los Angeles has been incredibly creative, actually, in terms of the types of housing that they're putting people in. But bottom line here is that if you go to get tested for COVID, even if you don't get the COVID test, um, that should be covered, right? I think the spirit of the law would be, yes, absolutely. But as the American healthcare system is buyer beware at all times, uh, even when you're feeling like death is coming, you know, I think avoid an ER if you absolutely can. You know, if, you're, if your GP says you need to get a COVID test at this point, unless it's an emergency, of course, and you need to go to the ER, really push to say, where can I go get this? Is it at the Department of Public Health? Where is it? We've seen so many stories of how expensive different COVID tests are. So you can also ask that question up right away. You know, will everything be covered if I go to this one particular place? Good advice. Sarah Varney, thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Julie. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Joanne, why don't you go first this week? Um, there was a great piece in The New Yorker by Dhruv Kular called The Emotional Evolution of Coronavirus, Doctors and Patients. And it was about, it went deeper. We all know doctors are dealing with horrible, doctors and other healthcare providers are dealing with these horrible circumstances, many deaths. So this, this talks not just about the stress and the pain and the anxiety because they're also becoming sick or at risk of becoming sick, but sort of the stages they go through, how they over-attachment and then the over-detachment, the over-attachment, over-detachment, and then trying to find your balance in this horrible circumstance and also rewarding circumstance of being a doctor in a pandemic. Kimberly, your, your story was related, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so it came from The Atlantic. It's by Ed Young, and it's the pandemic experts are not okay, and it just talks about some of the, um, you know, how, how the, our, our public health um, experts are, um, you know, trying to deal with the mental and emotional exhaustion that comes from having to advise um, during this crisis and watching the numbers continue to surge. And um, it was just really a fascinating piece with some of the country's top experts in this area. Yeah. And just to be clear, Joanne's was about doctors and Kimberly's is about epidemiologists mostly and, and the, the, the public health people who are being sort of beat, who are not doing direct patient care, but are still getting, getting rather beaten about the, the head and shoulders pretty constantly. Mel. So mine is from Science News. It's called How Making a COVID-19 Vaccine Confronts Thorny Ethical Issues by Bethany Brookshire. And this, I thought, you know, raised another thought about, you know, the vaccine development process. You know, we've heard about political concerns. We've heard about distribution concerns. This kind of looked at the different types of ethical concerns in the actual development of the scene of of a vaccine, considering using fetal tissue, animal tissue, um, HeLa cells, if you've read the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, looking at that. And it, on th- those issues, it actually raised some of the restorative justice that might come from if those cells do lead to a vaccine, you know, giving the, that vaccine then to Black Americans who have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. So 
there's a lot of issues when it comes to a vaccine. This was, you know, a set that I hadn't personally thought of that I found really interesting. Yeah, I did too. I also had not thought about that. Um, my extra credit this week is from the New York Times. It's called Sweden Has Become the World's Cautionary Tale by Peter Goodman. It's about how Sweden didn't lock down the way most of the other countries in Europe did. And how did that go? Well, this from the story. Per million people, Sweden has suffered 40% more deaths than the United States, 12 times more than Norway, seven times more than Finland, and six times Times more than Denmark. But what's most interesting about the story is that you would presume that in exchange for not shutting down, Sweden's economy would be doing better than its neighbors. Turns out, not so much. Basically, Sweden is taking hits almost identical to its Scandinavian neighbors. So all those people saying it's not a trade-off, that economies won't get better until the virus gets better, the evidence, at least so far, suggests that they are correct. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you leave us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even though we're all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Kim? At Leonard KL. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Mel. At Mel McIntyre. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.